Well, if you have your Bibles with you today, and I hope you do, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Malachi. And if you're not sure where that is, it's the last book in the Old Testament. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16 today. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into our text. Father God, we do uh, thank you for your covenant today. Thank you that um, you are both good and faithful to us. That, that your goodness runs after us, that it's steadfast, that it's not conditional, but it's unconditional. Thank you for that, those covenant promises that you've made to us. Those are the things that we build our life upon, that we continue to go back to as a, as a well that gives us living water. But we thank you for your promises. And Lord, we're here to confess that we believe in them. We're here to resolve again to live our lives according to your covenant. And as we, as we dive into a, a text that has a real weight to it, has a real burden to it, I pray, Father, that we could see this passage within the context of your covenant, that you have made promises to us. You, you, you expect us to keep our end of the deal, to be faithful to our end of the agreement. But even when we're not, you are faithful to your end of the agreement. And so, Lord, uh, we praise you for that. And, and as we feel burdened and feel the weight of this passage today, I pray that we would keep it again in the context of, of your good and faithful covenant, that you're always going to be good to us, even when we fail. Lord, to that end, I pray that I would not say anything out of step with your will or your word, but I'd simply hide behind the cross. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen. We live in a day that, that I would argue uh, devalues marriage. Less and less people are getting married. The divorce rate remains high. Uh, while in office, the prime minister of Canada is going through a divorce. And the fascinating thing to me about all that is that no one really cares. It, it's really not that big of a deal. And that hasn't always been the case. In fact, in generations past, if, if there was a politician who was unfaithful to their marriage covenant then they would, people would view them suspiciously as if they couldn't be trusted for higher office. For example, in the early 1960s, the Republican Senator Prescott Bush, he publicly rebuked the Republican governor of New York, John Rockefeller, for divorcing his wife. This is what he said in a speech. Have we come to the point in our life as a nation where the governor of a great state, one who perhaps aspires to the nomination for president of the United States, can desert a good wife, mother of his grown children, divorce her, and then persuade the mother of four youngsters to abandon her husband and their four children and marry the governor? Have we come to the point where one of the two great political parties can confer upon such a one its highest honor and greatest responsibility? I venture to hope not. That's pretty alien for contemporary ears, isn't it? No, no one would, would dream of saying that today. That took a lot of guts and courage in the 1960s, but that would be madness today. However, that shift in, the, in kind of the public's view of the sanctity of marriage, sometimes that slips into the church. Sometimes that becomes the air that we breathe. And so when Kristen and I sit down with, with couples for premarital counseling, we, we always try to emphasize to them that, listen, marriage is hard. There's going to be a temptation to abandon this, but, but know going in that, that marriage is hard, and as a result, guard your heart. Like guard your heart on the 
convictions that you have. Guard your heart um, on the things that you love. The, the key to staying married and, and the key to uh, having a happy marriage is to guard your heart. Today's our, our third message to the book of Malachi. And, and Malachi is a little unique. It's unique in the sense that it, it's the final book of the Old Testament. And so it, it's this kind of this final prophetic word that God gives to his people before they enter into the intertestamental period and as they walk up to the Messiah coming to them. But but it's also unique in its structure. It takes this kind of dispute format. It's really divided into what is probably best understood as six different sermons. But these sermons are are kind of a a dispute form. And so they're they're questions and, and answers that go back and forth. So sometimes God asks, questions of his people, but then sometimes God's people ask questions of, of him. And so today we're in the, the third sermon. And the problem that Malachi 2, 10 to 16 is, is uh, addressing is the problem of lust and lack of love. And listen, those things can be intertwined, right? Like we can pursue lust because of lack of love. And, and lust and lack of love, that can cause us to marry people who are unfaithful, as well as marry, uh, as well as remain unfaithful in our marriage covenant, and all of that. When that happens, it's evidence of this broader problem going on in Malachi of spiritual apathy. So, so this passage fits within the the broader theme of Malachi of heartless orthodoxy. These were people that were orthodox. They they held the right doctrinal positions. If you ask them on a theology quiz, what do you believe? They would check the right boxes. But, but honestly, it didn't filter down into their hearts. They, they didn't really care about it. It, it wasn't really that important to them at, at a functional level. Christians can believe the right things. They can say the right things on the outside, yet be toying with lust and lack of love on the inside. That's why we need Malachi 2, 10 to 16. And this passage is going to call us to guard our hearts. Specifically, it's going to call us to to guard our hearts against unfaithfulness in marriage. And, and on the front end, it's going to call us to, to marry only a Christian. And then it's going to call us that once we are married, to remain faithful to our marriage. Now, you might be sitting here saying, yeah, but I'm not married. Why is this important to me? Well, I think for a few reasons. Number one, there might be a day where you are married. But also, there's people in your life who are married, family and friends, and, and God's going to call you to counsel them and encourage them on their own marriage at some point. But also what's going on here is, is similar to what Jesus does in the sense that it's going to cut to the heart. It's going to get to those inner motivations. It's going to cause us to guard our heart, and that applies to everyone. So let's look at two admonitions from Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16. And the first one in the first three verses is to marry a Christian, starting in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. How has he done it? Well, he's married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. This question might be splitting hairs, but it's important to kind of the, the logic of where he's going here. Who, who are the we in verse 10? Like, listen, it, it's common for people to talk about the, the fatherhood of God and then the, the brotherhood of man. And, and in one sense, that's certainly true. We're all God's children. But the Bible actually doesn't really talk that way. 
When the Bible talks about his children, he's talking about the elect people of God, people who believe in him. When he talks about being a father, he's talking specifically about those who've been adopted, who are within his covenant, his, his elect people of God. And that's what's going on here. Now listen, that truth doesn't in any way contradict a universal call of the gospel. God calls all to be saved, every type of person. All can come to salvation through Christ. And it's not talking about the, that there's somehow a lack of diversity in the kingdom of God. When we see pictures of heaven in Revelation, it's made up of all tribes and all tongues. But what he's talking about here in Malachi 2.10 is the elect people of God. And the reason why we know that's the case is because even though all people are created by God, Malachi 2.10b, not all people are under the covenant of the fathers, Malachi 2.10b. Do you see that? So, the covenant is key to understanding the we of Malachi 2.10. Now, that's not splitting hairs because the covenant then becomes the theme that kind of runs through this whole passage. God is speaking to his people about their covenant of marriage, but it's within the context of this broader covenant that he has with his people. They're, they're intertwined covenants, if you will. They're, they're not being faithful to their covenant. In fact, God said that they had profaned the covenant. They defiled it. They soiled what was meant to be clean. They, they tainted what was meant to be pure. They untied and loosened what was meant to be knotted and held secure. They were unfaithful in their religion and their relationship with God because they were unfaithful to the covenant. They've, they have not honored their commitments. They've been unfaithful. And this is significant because the ultimate virtue in the Bible is faithfulness. God wants you to be faithful. Now, now sometimes we, uh, the world pits love against faithfulness, and the Bible never really does that. It's kind of a, a, a false straw man thing going on there. The problem with that, pitting those two against each other, is the world typically has has a, uh, an unfaithful, an unbiblical view of love. Typically when the world talks about love, it's talking about like radical acceptance. So, so it's wrong to ever correct anyone or say what they're doing is wrong. Parents, you know that's ridiculous. You, you know that that's not love. Like you can't raise your children that way. That's not, that's not real love. But what they do is when they pit those two things together, it tries to put people in this deal of, okay, am I, should I be faithful or should I be loving? Well, I'm going to go be loving even if I'm not unfaithful. The Bible doesn't allow you to do that. The Bible calls you to be faithful. And in fact, the Bible brings faithfulness and love together. And that's really important because it then helps you love people in the right way. It helps you love people in the most faithful way. It gives you a rightly ordered love. You're able to love people in righteous ways and in healthy ways and in good ways. And that all leads to the question, yeah, but, but how are they faithless to one another? Verse 10. In what way were they profaning the covenant? Well, Malachi 2.11 explains their profanity, their, their abomination. Here it is. The, the men of Israel were marrying women who did not believe in the God of Israel. That's how they were unfaithful. That's how they were faithless. That's how they were, were faithless to the covenant. They were marrying unbelievers. So when the we of the elect people of God marry the they of unbelievers, God calls it unfaithful. He calls it profanity when an unbeliever does not love, when a, when a believer doesn't love God enough to the degree that he would marry someone who doesn't love God. The abomination is that an unbeliever doesn't trust God. 
The unbeliever trusts another God. That's why this is disordered love. That's the issue that he's dealing with. So when they married unbelievers, they were profaning the covenant of God. They were committing an abomination. So the covenant of marriage, again, is intertwined with God's covenant with his people. The abomination for God's people to marry God's people, that extends from the Old Testament into the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 6.14 calls us to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. To, to yoke two animals is to tie them together so that together they can, that they can do the work with double the strength. Now, in 2 Corinthians 6, it's talking about a broader category than just marriage, but marriage is included in that. And right after that, in 2 Corinthians 6, he goes, or, uh, later in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks specifically about, about marriage. Paul was single, and he really esteemed singleness. In fact, he says it's good to be single, and he said, I think it's better to be single. But then he talks about marriage, and specifically the issue he's dealing with is the problems that arise when an unbeliever is married to a believer. And typically what happened, what is referred to there is they're both unbelievers, then one gets converted, and, and then what do we do here? And so Paul gives some instructions there, but what's going on there is that it's highlighting the problems that arise when an unbeliever is, is married to a believer. So clearly God's desire is for believers to be married to believers. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to be yoked and married to another brother or sister. Now, as a result of marrying unbelievers, what we see there in verse 12 is that God then judges them. God, God then curses them. And that's how God responds to this. When we're unfaithful to his law, to his word, to his covenant, it opens us up to discipline. Therefore, marry a Christian. That, that's just the, the straightforward admonition of this passage is to marry a Christian. And it doesn't need to be more complicated than that. So ladies, if he doesn't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, be polite, finish the dinner, make him pay, and then just move on. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to you know, look for clues in the sky. You just need to move on. Guys, in the same way, if she doesn't believe that God so loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son to be the substitutionary atonement uh, for all your sins on the cross. And if we would just believe in him that when we die, we go to heaven instead of hell, be nice, enjoy the movie, but move on. You don't need to pray about it. You don't need to seek counsel on it or, or look for you know, some sort of weird sign. You just need to move on. Amen? Is that clear? But let's also be honest that there's a challenge there, right? Because Many people say they're a Christian, and maybe they're not. So really what this passage is calling you into is, is you're going to have to judge the genuineness of their faith. That's what God is calling you to. And listen, this isn't about being this kind of judgy church lady. But, but, but be honest, it, it's about that you need discernment. You need to display wisdom on who you date and then who you marry. You're not buying a new pair of shoes, okay? Like if there's something in your life that you should be uber picky about, this is it, right? But like you, you, it would be foolish if you weren't picky about this. In fact, what God is saying to Malachi 2 is that, is that it would be faithless for you to marry someone who's not a Christian. The, the covenant of God with you is intertwined with the covenant of marriage. So how do you determine if someone is a genuine believer, someone that you should, that you should marry? Well, Dr. Caswell's pastoral advice is this. Run at Jesus as fast as you can, and then look and see who's keeping up with you. 
If you've heard that before, I, I think it's great advice. Just go 100 miles an hour at Jesus and then see who's keeping up with you. Okay, well, okay, what does that mean? Well, I, I think it means that you dig deep into God's Word. And then you listen for those who show evidence of also going deep into God's Word. It means you, you go on the mission trip. And then you watch to see who goes on the mission trip with you. You you serve in the kids' ministry and in the student ministry. And then you observe, okay, who else is discipling the next generation? You you show up to small group. And then you see who else is showing up to small group. You you listen to those prayer requests. And you say, okay, who, who else is also like having these prayer requests about how they're sharing the gospel with their friend or about, or about how they're fighting sin in their life? That, that, that's how you find out. Marrying a Christian is a key part of being faithful to God's covenant. Marrying an unbeliever is an act of unfaithfulness to, to God's word. And the covenant of merit is intertwined with God's covenant with you. So marry a Christian. He now switches and talks about a second thing. He, he talks about, he moves from judgment on this, and now he's going to talk about, okay, what if you've already been married and, and, and now we're married? The second admonition is to remain faithfully married. Look at 13 to 16. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Well, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to, the, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and, and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. The transition here is from verse 12 and this promise of discipline and a cursing for marrying an unbeliever. And then beginning in 13, they're experiencing the discipline. Now, we don't really know what it means that God no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand in, in verse uh, 13. But we do know that it's painful. So there's some aspect of painful that they're, they're weeping on the altar. So when, when God's people are removed from God's presence, it's painful. And so you might be thinking, okay, that sounds a lot like Matthew 18. That's right. So in church discipline, when you remove someone from God's presence, it's supposed to be painful. And that painfulness is meant to draw them back to faithfulness. It's the exact same thing going on here. However, even though God's word is really clear, they're confused for some reason. Notice they're, confused. they're, they're crying on the altar. They don't know why all this is going on. They're either being really disingenuous or they don't know God's word. Now, I, I'll put my cards on the table. I, I think they're being disingenuous. I think they know exactly who they're supposed to marry, who they're not supposed to marry. And, and so I, I think this is very disingenuous because even going all the way uh, back to creation, they know that what God brings together, they're supposed to honor that covenant. Like if you go back to Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast and they shall become one flesh. They know all the way back then that they are to be faithful to this thing that God has brought together, and they haven't been faithful to that. And so God is removing his presence from them. However, I think 
all married couples will agree that getting married was the easy part. Staying married is hard. When Chris and I sit down with a couple for premarital counseling, we, we, we try to make that point, and, and we do that just kind of through some of the funny proverbs. We, we make them read these funny proverbs. And one of them, for example, Proverbs 19.13, it talks about kind of the, the mundane quarrels and annoyances of marriage being similar to the torture of dripping water. That's a good one. I like uh, Proverbs 21.19. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful wife. Husbands, you can struggle to sacrificially and gently love your wives. Wives, you can struggle to respect and honor your husbands. That's why we need Ephesians 5, to to draw us back to the marriage covenant because marriage is difficult, okay? Marriage is difficult. The Bible is clear that trials await when two sinners come together into the marriage covenant. Marriage is very difficult. It takes great discipline to control your tongue, right? To not just tell him what he needs to hear, but to hold that back, to find the right time, right? It, it takes real spiritual maturity to, to uh, forgive her when she has wronged you. Repentance is not natural. It's supernatural. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen, but comes when people are increasingly yielded to the Word of God and to the Spirit of God. But Malachi 2, 14 to 16, it causes, uh, calls us to remain faithful to our marriage covenant. And, and a covenant is just a contract, really. It's, it's just an agreement between two parties. But when you talk about covenant, one of the parties is, is God himself. So when you get married, there's this, uh, there's this divine, sacred partner involved in the relationship. So God is committed to be his people's God. He's promised to be with us and to for us. He's made this covenant to bless us. But the problem in the covenant is we don't always keep our end of the covenant. Again, the covenant of marriage is intertwined with God's covenant. Covenant's important uh, because it establishes a relationship. And these covenants of marriage and our covenant with, with God, this broader covenant, they're all intertwined. And so he explained to Malachi 2.15 his desire for his people to enter this covenant of marriage in order to have children who also then live in a covenant relationship with them. So, so these two things are brought together. Therefore, God was a partner in the marriage covenant. If you're married, God's part of that. It's not a, a casual arrangement. That's why it's so important to, to take that step. It's different than just living together. There's this relationship that is formed and established by God. They were to live as married people according to his covenant, and their marriages were to produce believing children. Therefore, they were, to, they were not to abandon their marriage commitments because their commitments in their marriage were connected to their commitments to God. They're intertwined. Friends, when a husband is unfaithful to his wife, he's also been unfaithful to his God. You see, he's sinned against his wife, but he's also sinned against God. So if someone is unfaithful in their marriage covenant relationship, it's a very real indication that there's something broken in their relationship with God. God ties the two covenants together. Husbands and wives, do you see how these two covenants are brought together? You can nod your head at that. Do you, do you see how they're brought together? It, it, it's not just about you and him or you and her. God's part of this. It's connected deeply to your spiritual life. Wives, you can't be unfaithful to your husband and think you're faithful to God. 
Husbands, you can't run around on your wife and think you're like okay with your relationship with God. If, if you're doing that, it's saying something is wrong with your relationship with God. There's a deeper problem. Therefore, the application is that if you are in a covenant relationship with God and you're married, then your marriage relationship is tied into that relationship with God. Therefore, remain sexually pure in your marriage covenant. That's just the plain, direct admonition from this passage. Unfaithfulness to the marriage covenant, it leads to divine uh, discipline. This unfaithfulness, of course, it means the that you're to have a sexual relationship only with your spouse. So if you're not married yet, that type of intimacy is reserved for your spouse when you put a ring on it, okay? Also, if you are married, that type of intimacy is reserved for only your spouse. So you're called to believe that your future spouse or your present spouse, you're called to believe that that's God's best for you. And you're to wait for that. You're to live within the boundaries that God's word gives to you. However, sexual purity, it includes what you look at and what you think about. Obviously, in Malachi's day, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have pornographic images to look at. But, but it's included in there because that, that gets to the, to the heart of lust and to the heart of lack of, of love. So this includes what you look at and what you think about. And, and if you doubt that, we just need Jesus' word in Matthew 5. You've heard it said that you should not commit adultery, but I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Friends, what Jesus does there is he raises the bar, right? He raises the standard. Therefore, you're to guard your heart. That's why he says it twice in our passage. Verse 15 and then in verse 16, so guard yourself in your spirit. And in fact, he connects Guarding yourself with faithfulness because he ends the whole passage. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not be faithless. In other words, if you want to be faithful, then reverse engineer it and guard your heart. Do you see that? Marry a believer. Once you do marry them, remain faithfully married. But then that raises the question, how will you guard your heart? Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart or keep your heart with all uh, vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. What does that mean? How how, how do we do that? Guarding is the idea of like, of actively protecting something. You're you're protecting something behind you and you're guarding. You're standing in front of it. You're protecting it from things that are coming from the outside. So there's things on the outside that are going to affect and harm the things behind you. So guarding your heart means protecting both your convictions and your loves. So, so like the saints in Malachi's day, you're to protect your convictions. You see, in, in their day, they weren't, they weren't guarding their heart in the sense that they were allowing false teaching to come into their house. Like, like that was the problem on, on if the men were marrying unbelieving women who followed other gods. Then they were bringing Baal worship and these, these uh, false truths, these false religious teachings. They were bringing heresy into their house. They, they weren't guarding their convictions. Are you guarding against the convictions of the world. However, ultimately, guarding our heart is about protecting what we love. So this reality is, a, is a <laughs> reality is that a little bit of charm, a good joke, along with the right music, that can totally manipulate what we love, right? I mean, we, we've all seen movies, right? And you're moved by something you back up. I can't even believe I teared up at that. It's so dumb when you think about it. But I mean, it was just the right music and it hits you right. But like, if you think about the sexual revolution, that hasn't come from like, you know, like this 
you know, balanced debate and like these academic journal articles that we all read on or politicians making the case for it all happening. You know how it all got ramped up? Sitcoms. <laughs> like, like people making jokes, and, and that's kind of what moved the culture in that direction. It indicates that our love can totally be manipulated. Are, are you being manipulated? Is your love manipulated, or are you guarding your heart? How do we guard our hearts? Well, Jesus promises us to send us a helper to help. The Spirit helps us guard our heart. Let me read Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But for those who live according to the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So the way you guard your heart is you yield your, your mind, your heart, your, your thought life to the Spirit. In other words, don't, don't toy around with lustful thoughts. Don't, don't play around with it. And when you start playing around with it, know that that's a check engine light. Something's off. I'm not walking in the Spirit. Cry out to the Spirit for help. Ask the Helper to help you. Guard your heart to, by asking Him to help you love what is good and righteous and holy and sacred. And that's not, uh, that, that's not just true and right. That's true and right because that's what leads to joy, right? Amen? Like toying with those things doesn't ultimately make you happy. But when you guard against those things, yield yourself to the Spirit, ask Him to help and love what is good and right and righteous, that leads you to joy, doesn't it? We know it's true. Ask the Helper to help us when you need it. But second, what, what if we fail? And you're going to fail in these departments, right? Like, like what, if, what do we do when we fail? Like, listen, you're going to be an imperfect spouse. Like, what if, what if you failed maybe even in like a, a real destructive way in your marriage? And maybe it's brought painful consequences to you or your spouse or your kids. Can I give you just three verses to encourage you today? Because if you look at this and you say, man, I failed here, I failed here. Let, let me just give you three verses to encourage you. The first one is cling to the gospel because Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Isn't that good news? How does your heavenly husband love you? You have a perfect husband, ladies, and it's not the guy sitting next to you. He's an imperfect husband. You have a perfect husband demonstrated by the fact that he has loved you sacrificially. He's died for you. He has made you now right with him. He gave himself up for you. So remember when you fail or when she fails or when, when he fails, Jesus has sacrificed for that moment. He's paid for that moment. And second, then hold fast to the good news of Romans 8.1. If that's true, that your heavenly husband has sacrificed for you, then that means Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Listen, when you blow it in your marriage, maybe in a big way, maybe in a smaller way, and you feel condemned, the gospel is, is that you are not condemned. How glorious is that? Isn't that good news? That when you fail and you feel condemned, the gospel is, is because Jesus died in your place and paid for that sin that is a sin, you are now no longer condemned. Well, the third verse is, then go back to Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death 
or, or you kill the deeds of the body, you will live. Listen, when you fail, confess it. Face the consequences with courage and, and with grace. And then go back to guarding your heart again. When you fail, believe again the gospel of Romans 8.1. You are no longer condemned. And then return to the battle of Romans 8.13. Amen. Before we close, I want to do one more thing. I, I just I kind of feel a pastoral conviction, maybe just to give you some tips. Can I give you some tips on dating and marriage and, and faithfulness? And, and listen, I'm putting my cards on the table. I don't, I don't have like a white paper on all these. And I, I don't even have all these good cross-references for all this. Okay, this is 45-year-old pastor. You take it or leave it, okay? Number one, when you date someone, they should be the type of person that you could marry. This means that if they aren't a convictional Christian, don't pray about it, just don't pursue it, okay? But also I would encourage you, don't get too serious too fast. There's a tricky balance here. Like, I think you need to be really intentional when you date, but you do need to have fun together, okay? Sometimes a real serious Christian gets really serious in dating, and sometimes it's like, hey, bro, just come up for air, man. Just breathe a little bit. Like, go have fun, okay? But, but also sometimes people are not intentional at all, and they kind of need advice maybe from the other end of the spectrum. It's just me, but I think before college is not the time to get too serious in dating. And again, run at Jesus as fast as you can and see who's keeping up. But when you're determining if you should marry him, ladies, Determine if he's spiritually mature. And ask some of these questions. Does he have a walk with the Lord? Does he regularly attend church? Is he a good friend? Is he serving? Is he growing? Does he love his mom? Do you think he's going to be a great dad? Do you respect him? Ladies, determine if he will provide for you. Is he a hard worker? Is he going in a direction? Is he mature? And third, determine if you like being with him. Does he make you laugh? Is he kind to you? Can you live without him? Are you happy when you're around him? Guys, when you're determining if you should marry her, determine first, is she godly? Is she a woman of the word? Do you hear scripture coming out of her mouth? Does she have biblical convictions? Is she in a church community? Is she a good friend? Does she display a servant's heart? Do you want her raising your children? Second, determine if she can be the heart of your home. Do you have fun with her? Does she make you better? Is she loving and supportive? Does she love her family? Can you live without her? Are you happy when you're around her? And regarding faithfulness in marriage, I think the, the biggest struggle with regards to faithfulness in marriage is comparison. So I, I believe faithfulness in, in marriage, it really begins with the conviction that your spouse, no matter what season you're in, is God's best for you? Like, like, do you believe your marriage is within God's good sovereignty for you? If you believe that, then you believe that your spouse is God's best for you. Now listen, I, I know they're flawed, okay? I know they're flawed. And, and I know you're flawed too, right? Like, let's be honest, you're not 2006, the holiday Jude law. You're just not, okay? Right? And listen, she's not Diane Sawyer, okay? That might be dated for you. Maybe that doesn't work. There's a backstory to that. 20 years ago, and, and I, it, I, I, she's never let me live it down, I, I, I make this random comment 
that, yeah, Diane Sawyer's a pretty lady. And, and Kristen was like, she goes, listen, she's like 40 years older than you. It was just, a, it was a weird moment. And it was, it was weird for a series of reasons because, like, listen, you've got one of those in a marriage, okay? Like, you've got, you got one shot at that. you got, you know, one bullet to shoot there. I, I just, I don't know why I went there, but Kristen looked at me like, you've got one shot. Like, be better, man. Like, you know, this is, this is what it is. I learned a lot of wisdom from that random comment. I haven't made that mistake again. But you get my point, right? You're also not going to forget this sermon. This is going to be forever the Diane saw your sermon. Well, here's my point, okay? God's good sovereignty. When you receive your spouse as God's good gift and as God's best, then you can believe that comparison is a waste of time. It's just a waste of time. It's not going to lead anywhere good. You know that pursuing other things will not make you happy. You can then just enjoy the blessing of God's gift. But like, like your type is whatever you're married to. They don't play with anything else. It's just that's God's best for you, okay? And listen, believe your spouse is God's best for you. Young people, if, if God calls you to get married, know that marriage is hard, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. It's good. And, and as a young person, I think it's easy to look at your parents' marriage and just pick it apart, okay? If, if you come at me with that, I'm going to say, hey, I agree with you. Okay, you're right. And what that means is, listen, it shouldn't be that way. It, it, it could be better. I rec- I'm with you. But now you, you, that's a challenge for you just to go do it different, okay? Like, like I'm with you if you're, if you're going to pick it apart. But listen, Every marriage is imperfect. Every marriage needs to grow and be better in different ways, but the benefits far outweigh the negatives. Like it's, it's worth it. Amen? Husbands, that's your shot to amen in the service. Husbands, if you want the day to go well for you, it's worth it, right? Amen? That's a really small percentage of you. Let's, it's third time. Gentlemen, marriage is worth it. Amen? amen. There it is. However, get married according to the wisdom of the Lord. Do it within, the, the, within his boundaries because he knows best. Marry a Christian, remain faithfully married, and remember to guard your heart. And never, I mean never, randomly look up at the TV while the news is going and say, you know, Diane Sawyer's a pretty lady. <laughs> Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this passage, and, and Lord, I just thank you for the, the married couples in this church. Uh, they really display a lot of faithfulness. Marriage is not easy, and they model really great things for us. Lord, I, I uh, pray that, like we see in 1 Corinthians 7, that we would esteem singleness. I think the two greatest men who ever lived were single, Jesus and Paul, and at the same time, uh, marriage is to be esteemed as well. And Lord, as we explore marriage, I, I pray that the single people, if they pursue marriage, that they would only marry a Christian. And for those of us who are married, help us to remain faithful to our marriage covenant. And Lord, when we fail, help us to, to lean back on your covenant with us to help us walk faithfully again. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.